0: Hi, I'm Scott Sashman. And I'm Evan Novi williams On this week's show, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in
2: the industry. On this weekly podcast, we talk to Major League Soccer Commissioner Don Garber about the business of soccer.
1: There is just an an enormous amount of innovation that's really happening in and around our sport and around our league, and that's got investors excited and cities excited and uh, stadium developers excited.
2: We will have more of our interview with Major League Soccer Commissioner Don Garber in a few minutes. But first, Evan, let's take a look at the biggest stories of the week. Number one has to be Russia and the Olympics. The IOC says Russia as a federation cannot participate. Winners, losers, your take.
0: IOC went short of doing the full thing, which is barring Russia and all of its athletes from the games, but this is the next closest thing. Uh, this is a pretty unprecedented penalty for Russia, obviously stemming back to a fairly systemic uh, doping Uh, Scandal that 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 were very pervasive during the 2014 games in Russia. Um, I think the big question now, obviously, Russia can choose not to go, which I don't believe is going to happen. But the big question is how many Russian athletes are deemed by this panel to be clean, and how many of them will we see on the ground in a couple months? Yeah, like you
2: said, it was so pervasive. How do you now deem who was participating and who was not? But at least Putin has said, "I will not stop the athletes from participating." NBC happy, IOC happy. Like I said, this seemed like it was a delicate balance between having to take a tough stand and not costing yourselves all the attention and revenue at the game.
0: This still hurts the Olympics as a, as a property, obviously. I mean, Russia is one of the, the biggest countries participating in, in in the Winter Games. Their, their athletes are very popular internationally. Um, you, you do wonder how many of the events might be not not as popular, might not be as watched, might not be as followed. Uh, if the Russian athletes are not there,
2: and they'll play under athletes from Russia, but there will be no anthem played. But people will still tally medals. It just probably be fewer athletes there.
0: Yeah, sure. You're going to see the American flag going, but but for a, a lot of this is symbolic. You're gonna, there's still going to be Russian athletes there, and 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 they will be called Russians.
2: And one of the guys who was barred, by the way, is the head of the World Cup committee. <laughs> so we'll see if there's any cross-honoring. Sure. Another big one, and you and I discuss this on a daily basis. Fox looking to sell some of its assets, including, and the part we're going to focus on here is the regional sports networks, Disney, ESPN, perhaps close to a deal. They have about half the RSNs in the country. This would be a huge win for ESPN if they can get this done absolutely it's more
0: consolidation for them across their properties uh i'm i can't even keep track of, of all the uh, all the the merging and, and the buying that's happening in the media world right now um it seems like every day there's another mega mega deal and all these things have effects for sports
2: it's fun to see though as this plays out who's going to be right obviously fox is looking to shed an asset that it believes subscriber fees uh, or affiliate fees will be coming down Moving up the cost of getting sports, ESPN, Disney seems to feel that having the programming will be so valuable, hyper-local, these are things you have to have in market, that it's still a great driver of revenue and value, who will be right in the long
0: term. Yeah, we're starting to see kind of a difference in business model between ESPN and Fox. And worth noting again... Fox Sports One, the 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 network that launched a couple of years ago with great fanfare, that was going to compete with ESPN, that is not part of this deal. So Fox is still holding on to that. the 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 rights fee model, the national broadcast, that is still obviously a part of Fox's future. Uh, the regional stuff, clearly not.
2: Yeah, and the YES Network, of course, twenty percent owned by the Yankees at this point, is part of it. Big big stake in New York. Yeah, you just you just wonder moving forward. Where the pricing is going to settle out? Will this help with the OTT service? Because some of these RSNs will include basketball, so they get more programming. Someone's going to be right. Someone's (laughs) going to be right. Someone's going to be right. We're not going to look back and say, "Wow, everybody won on this." Someone's going to be right. Will be interesting. Speaking of winners and who was right, well, Mark Gannis was right on this program. Mark Gannis told us Roger Goodell ain't going nowhere. This thing is overblown, this feud with Jerry Jones. He's going to get his contract. It's going to get done. Boom. It was done, and he got his contract, and it's for some pretty good numbers.
0: Exactly. We talk about this a lot, but it's clear that the, the public struggling of the NFL is not necessarily exactly how a lot of owners see it. Over his tenure, Roger Goodell has done uh, a tremendous amount to grow the business of the league. Uh, and even though there are some high-profile dissenters, and, and Jerry Jones, uh, especially in that over the past couple months, uh, it's clear that the majority of owners uh, appreciate what Roger's
2: doing and want to see that continue. Yeah, there's this big carping and the threat of lawsuit, but in the end, it perhaps was posturing. It looks as if, though, a good portion of the contract is incentive-based. Now, we don't know, just like athletes, when you say incentives, is it you have to play one second or you have to play 82 games? Uh, My guess would be that a fair amount of them are easily reachable incentives for Roger because he probably wasn't thrilled with the idea that he had to prove himself all over again. But if he does fulfill all of the clauses in the contract, it looks like he could pocket upwards of $40 million per year. And a league that generates about $14 billion in annual revenue, that would hit put him in sort of similar company, uh, in public companies, in some rarefied air. That is that is a hefty pay package.
0: He's getting paid a little bit more than us, is what you're saying.
2: A, li- a little bit more than combined, if you, if you, if you put it together. Uh, clearly, like you're saying, the owners like what Roger does, they like that he takes the bullets for them, and this takes him through, importantly, perhaps most importantly, this takes Roger through that time period when he will begin talks on the new media contracts, the new big contracts. That will determine whether he's successful or not.
0: Also worth noting, you mentioned the incentive-based, that seems like kind of the happy medium between what Jerry Jones was harping about and and, and the result, in that you let Jerry Jones at least claim that something about the contract was changed that that it's more incentive based you got to make Roger earn it uh, but but in in the final way uh, this is just Roger getting the extension that all the owners including Jones signed off on months ago
2: all right from football to football in 1999 he became the commissioner of Major League Soccer so far he has expanded to 23 teams MLS has 20 new owners in that time he's inked broadcast deals with ESPN Fox Univision Don Garber, thanks for joining us. Let's start with the process that you are undergoing right now, that is expansion. Every time I look up, it seems as if somebody wants to join MLS. What are the major factors that you attribute the attractiveness for all of this expansion?
1: Well, you know, MLS uh, has always been a growth story, uh, and it has always been positioned by us, and I think by many other people in the sports industry, as a league on the rise. You know, there are very few... Uh, opportunities in the sports business to get in on the ground floor and innovate and be part of kind of a movement, which soccer in our country has really become. And of late, uh, there is just an an enormous amount of innovation that's really happening in and around our sport and around our league. And that's got investors excited and cities excited and uh, stadium developers excited and Leading to the you know expansion process that is going on uh, this week. You know we started with 12 teams when this league was announced, went down to 10 teams when we went through some you know real soul searching as to what the future of MLS will be, and then last year we announced an expansion process for the next four teams, and 12 cities stepped up to the plate, and four of those cities will come in and bid uh, for the uh, next two teams, teams uh, 20. 5 and 26. It couldn't be a more exciting and fun time at MLS.
2: Now this is going to be a little wonkish, but I do find it interesting, and it is an important milestone. The LAFC stadium will be financed much in the traditional way of, let's say, an NFL stadium would be, in that revenue from the stadiums will repay the bonds. It hasn't always been the case. Owners had to put up some collateral. I mean, these are significant milestones, even if it's not the kind of thing the public might know about, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, financing and and the economics of sport, while there's a cottage industry in it, you know, really isn't what turns fans on. You know, they want to go to a game, they want to see good players have, you know, an exciting time, drink a beer, have a hot dog or a burger and, you know, hopefully, you know, cheer their team to victory. But, you know, ultimately in our business, there's an enormous, uh, uh, you know, industry that is in and around making sure that fans can – uh can get what they want. That starts with great facilities. Those facilities uh in many cases require some level of public support. Today they're public private partnerships. In the past we had to beg, borrow and steal uh just to get uh, a landlord to agree to uh do a long term lease for our league headquarters here in Midtown Manhattan. And today JP Morgan Chase and Bank of America just uh provided a league with a uh, over four hundred million dollar credit facility Goldman Sachs has been very, very engaged with our clubs in providing debt on their stadiums, and those are not privately uh, backed, meaning they're not guaranteed by the owner. They're guaranteed by the revenues that uh, those owners are able to, those teams are able to generate in sponsorship and other contractually obligated income. And uh, there was a time we had none of that income, and today uh, it has become so robust that uh, we're able to go out like every other business around the world and uh, and finance some of our, our future opportunity.
0: The four candidates for expansion right now, obviously, Cincinnati, Detroit, Nashville, Sacramento. You've been commissioner since 1999. How different are the conversations now that you have with potential uh, expansion owners yeah. versus the ones that you were having back around the turn of the millennium?
1: You know, it, it couldn't be more different. You know, there, there was a time, and every now and again we meet with an investor, uh, and I spoke to one on the phone uh, just the other day who was an original investor in the L.A. Galaxy before Phil Anschutz owned the team. It was owned by uh, an ex-Drexel guy named Mark Rappaport, who owned it for a few years and sold it for $26 million to Phil Anschutz and said, I want to be the only person to ever make money in the soccer business in America. And that guy said, boy, that was a mistake for me to uh, agree to sell on my interest because today I could own a, a team that could be worth anywhere from, you know, 300 to $400 million. Expansion in the original round was only $5 million. That was the original investment uh, that Phil Anschutz, Robert Kraft, and others made, Lamar Hunt. Uh, and then we went through contraction, and we could not give a team away. We had losses, and they couldn't get people to take these teams on, on, over uh, and uh, just manage those losses. Now you have teams lining up at $150 million uh, to pay to be a – an investor in the future of what MLS could be, what it could represent to their community, what it can represent to them as investors. Uh, the process, most importantly, has gotten from begging to actually entertaining alternatives. In Nashville, for example, our, our group, um, when we were down there uh, visiting the city, we were hosted by uh, the governor of the state and by uh, the two state senators uh, that uh, that were leading the effort uh, with their political support along with one of the leading you know families the Ingram family uh, and that exists in Cincinnati uh, it exists in Sacramento the four cities that are coming in three of the mayors from those cities will be in as part of those uh, expansion bids it's it's a different time but that doesn't mean it's uh, you know we're we've cracked the code. Uh, we still got a lot of work to do, and it's still a, an evolving business and one that requires investment.
2: We are chatting with MLS Commissioner Don Garber. And Don, you talked about a little bit about valuation. And of course, we all know something's worth what somebody's willing to pay. So if everybody's willing to pony up 150 for expansion or $300 million for a franchise, then that's what it's worth. Looks like average team now worth about $223 million. But I will tell you, I do talk to sports bankers. Who say and they say this by the way, by and large, whether it's the Marlins sale or some other other leagues, this isn't just MLS specific. They don't quite see how the revenue justifies the valuation. Is this a promise of tomorrow? People see good things coming, or do the current underpinnings support the numbers we're hearing about?
1: Well, you know, it's a very good question. I think sports is no different than any other you know growth industry. You know, if you were going to invest in a Um, in a a piece of real estate, you're going to invest not what it's worth today. You're going to invest what you think it's going to be worth tomorrow. Uh, I I met with a guy that uh, was one of the landowners for the D.C. United uh, project. And uh, while he's not an investor in MLS, he's an an investor in another sports property. uh, And he said he bought that real estate many, many years ago and thought that it would be generational. You know, his kids would take it over, and he thought it would take that long uh, for Buzzard Point to, uh, to be developed. So I think in the professional sports business, there is a a factor of uh, what is the multiple on revenues, and then what do they think the future opportunity of that asset could be over time. The case of Major League Soccer, where most of the teams are not making money, that value has to be including the ongoing operating investment that they're going to make if the teams are not cash flowing, and as long as we are in in an industry where teams are selling uh, for more than, uh, owners are paying for them and in the investments that they're making, either in a stadium or in ongoing operations, then the business continues to go forward. Uh, but in order to make it viable, uh, to, uh, to all investors as opposed to ones that have a very long-term horizon, you've got to continue to grow revenues and media and sponsorship and, and, and stadium revenues. And that's something that MLS and its teams spend most of their time focusing on.
2: Don, you have a great PR team over there at the league. They send over all sorts of talking points. Attendance is up, television up, social up, two new clubs, new stadiums, sponsors. Where is the revenue growth going to come from with all that? I mean, the major part we know is usually media, usually gate, sponsorships. Those are the biggies. But if I'm an investor, where can I expect the biggest bump to come from?
1: Well, you know, when you have long-term media deals, our uh, deals domestically with ESPN, Fox, and Univision don't expire until 2022. So our media opportunities, other than local media, uh, are limited uh, leading up to the expiration of our current agreements, and they've been good partnerships with those three partners. And those aren't huge deals, by the
2: way. I mean, In in the landscape of sport, these are not huge deals that we're talking about. You would surely expect some sort of, I don't want to peg it, 2X, 3X, 4X, whatever it might be. I'm certain that you and your owners would say, our product is worth more now.
1: Well, you know, absolutely. I don't think any rights holder would would think otherwise. But you know, you've got to deliver that value. You have got to continue to grow your audience. Our, our uh, ESPN just announced that their playoff ratings were up almost forty percent uh, year on year. That's a good story. Sports ratings are not growing double digits uh, in many other leagues. They are growing that, albeit off a very small, much smaller base. In Major League Soccer, growth an increased audience and the value of that audience in our case a very young and diverse audience has value to media partners whether they're the traditional media partners or the, the new over-the-top media partners and so you can imagine we're spending our time very focused on that but to answer your original question where's that uh, revenue coming from it's coming in a disproportionate level in mls from attendance and sponsorship uh... versus media and other leagues it's more proportionate to media and then either sponsorship and attendance or attendance of sponsorship, uh, depending on what the league is. And that's just part of the evolution of our league. Where are we in our lifespan? You know, you look at, you speak to an NBA or an NHL owner 10 or 15 years ago and ask them uh, whether or not they were operating at a, a level of profitability that they are today, and the answer more than likely in most cases was no, until they were able to get to the tipping point where their media uh, revenues uh, just dramatically increased because of all sorts of disruption that's happening in the media marketplace. And then many, if not most of those teams are now profitable. And that is the way our industry operates. That's what investors get their uh, their self prepared for. And then ultimately, you've got to look at this as a long term business. You know, I think if you wanted to put your money in the stock market or put it into some other, you know, faster return, albeit possibly probably more risky, and owning a sports team is not uh, the, the avenue for you. But I will just – I know it's a long answer, but i say something else. You know, our guys are not just in it for the quick return on their investment. You know, they're in it for what they can do in their community to fulfill, in many cases, the passions they might have for our sport, soccer, to try to be able to do something that can provide, you know, their contribution to creating this thing we call the soccer nation. Uh, trying to make soccer and the sport of soccer, men's and women's, more popular and ultimately more uh, important in our society.
0: We're speaking with MLS Commissioner Don Garber. Don, is there an advantage for for MLS fans that your business model right now is a little more reliant on on attendance and and in-person money spent? I mean, we've seen a lot of sports properties, college football teams will play on Tuesday night, even though nobody shows up because that's when ESPN wants them to play. There are tons of concessions across sports right now being made for TV against in-person. A lot of your franchises, Atlanta, Seattle, Portland, are kind of well-known for their in-stadium the atmosphere there. Is there an advantage to kind of not having the same ratio of revenue yeah. that, that maybe the NFL has?
1: Boy, that, that could be a new speaking point for me. Uh- <laughs> yeah, t-
2: Tell me you don't want the NFL's media revenue, Don. That, that's what I want to hear. Yeah.
1: You know, I think it's a great question and one that I as a thirty three years in our business spend time thinking about. But, you know, I will say, you know, we're beginning to face the same issues. You know, we we moved our playoffs from the weekends to weeknights to not compete with college football in the NFL, you know, during the months of November and early December and uh, and our television ratings grew dramatically and thankfully we had, you know, a sellout of twenty seven thousand in Toronto 45,000 in Seattle. Uh, so, you know, great gates, uh, but it's certainly not as convenient for fans than doing it on a Saturday night or a Saturday afternoon. And this is one of the challenges that our industry needs to, uh, to, in- to, to teach You have so many different constituents. You're in stadium experience, your media, uh, driven, uh, opportunities for revenue and also for broadening your fan base. Uh, and our, uh, business. Obviously, there's an international component. When do we put our games on so that it could be highly rated in Sky in London, in the UK or in Eurosport uh, throughout the continent or uh, in South America and Brazil or in Mexico? Uh, so there's so many different things that go into it. I know fans shouldn't have to think about that. And frankly, in many cases, they object to those decisions. But it's part of the dynamic that you've got to take all these inputs put it into the system, and come out with the right op- output, which is driving as much value as you can, not just financially, but value to the fan who is so important and so integral uh, to having a, a sport, a sports league, be successful.
0: Don, probably the biggest U.S. soccer story of the year, unfortunately, was the U.S. national team's inability to qualify for the World Cup. How much does that affect you guys in the next couple of years?
1: Well, you know, the short-term, affects, it affects us in, in so many ways. It starts emotionally and personally. You know, we're fans. You know, we uh, here at the league office, you're not going to root for a team, but you're certainly going to root for the U.S. or Canada when they're participating in international play. Uh, and when uh, our national team, which has been qualifying almost at an unprecedented rate, only five or six other countries that have been as consistent as we have, uh, uh, it's a setback, you know. it It, it, it hasn't... Uh, an impact on the, uh, the opportunity to take the U.S. participation in the men's time in the World Cup and just own the moment uh, during uh, three weeks in the summer. Uh, you know, it's not a birthright to qualify for the World Cup. And I think as we mature as a soccer nation, we've learned that. Uh, you have countries like Italy and Holland and Chile, Italy world champion, Holland semifinalist, Chile, Copa American uh, champion that didn't qualify this year and they like the United States have to ensure that they take a step back and see that they've got the right structure in place with their youth programs and with their professional leagues and with their national governing bodies in this case for us US soccer to be sure it never happens again
2: don you certainly attract millennials which you know all the advertisers want and maybe the new media covets tell me about your future with Facebook Twitter uh, Google whoever's gonna be involved in broadcasting sports that's not traditional Certainly, I know Facebook, uh, soccer is the most popular sport on Facebook's platform. Well, what do they do for you? What do you do for them?
1: You know, it starts with before you get to broadcasting. And again, it's a great question and spending an enormous amount of our time on it and have full-time people focusing in on it. You know, they're first social media channels and marketing partners for us and have been for many, many years. You know, I, though I don't enjoy it, have to be engaged on Twitter and and, and service you know, 100,000, 150,000 followers, the League, our clubs, our players need to be engaged in social media, no different than anybody else in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in this fully connected digital world that we live in. Uh, Facebook's had a partnership with us for many years in a wide variety of different content, marketing and promotional oriented uh, avenues. And this past year, we did a, uh, a streaming uh, uh, package on the Univision English language Facebook page uh, and and we had a game of the week. Uh, the Univision Spanish game was on Facebook in English. It was very unique. And we hope to find ways to continue that going forward. Uh, as you can imagine, it is laser focus for uh, our media folks and our business ventures folks to ensure that we are not just riding the opportunity with over the top, but driving it uh, to an audience that uh, is very, very, very connected digitally.
2: Is it possible in 2022 when your deal is up? And by the way, most of the major leagues, uh, the NFL, uh, NBA, those were long-term deals that expire about the same time. But when those deals are up, is there any way that the so-called digitals or the newbies won't be part of the bidding, looking for exclusive content, not just happy to have a game here or there, but we're talking cutting checks and billions of dollars to be full-fledged exclusive rights holders?
1: Well, again, I don't know what those rights deals will look like. And uh, I, I can assure you that uh, way before 2022, uh, the, the major players uh, in the digital uh, media content space or digital content space will be engaging in professional sports. Uh, Facebook uh, or uh, Facebook made a bid for, uh, I believe it was the uh, – The Indian Indian Cricket League, and I I heard it was several hundred million dollars. Uh, Twitter, as you know, has got a relationship with uh, the National Football League. So I think it is in uh, in, in years uh, or in the next year or two where you're going to see somebody uh, get into this space in a big way. I'm sure you followed what YouTube TV has done with Major League Baseball. and I think you'll see a greater rollout of, of Google YouTube uh both in their skinny bundle package and what they're doing with our current uh broadcasters like ESPN but also uh putting games on their uh their YouTube platform and uh exchanging rights uh and and selling ads so it's coming it's coming fast uh how much and uh, and who uh, goes first uh domestically is uh, something that I couldn't really do anything more than guess
2: so, on the level of genius, high or low, that Go- the Google YouTube ad during the World Series, right in the middle of your screen, was that high genius or low genius from where you sit?
1: Well, you know, I, again, I, I think it was really smart for baseball and good for them. I mean, you have a a, a league that's got an older fan base and one that has been uh, pushing themselves to be more innovative. If you follow what uh, Commissioner Manfred has been talking about with shortening their games and and and. Getting engaged internationally and doing some things that I'm really uh, admiring, the fact that baseball had a major sponsorship during the World Series uh, with a uh, cutting-edge, forward-thinking entity like Google is impressive. So uh, I noticed it, as did everybody else who's in the sports business.
0: And do you think largely there's more money going to be available kind of in this next round now that we have more players at the table, or or do you think there's the, the, the chance that maybe less?
1: Well, you know, I, again, it's, uh, I certainly hope there's more. And when you look at how our industry has, has evolved over the last number of decades, uh, there has been lots of transformation. ESPN getting launched in the 70s and the, the expansion of, of digital cable and having 500 channels and having more and more opportunities for sports networks like the NFL Network and NBA TV, uh, thinking about satellite coming in and direct TV you know, bidding for uh, the NFL package Sunday ticket. There's always been disruption. Fox coming in as a network player and buying NFL rights and NASCAR rights and baseball, and then what that did to the incumbents, NBC and CBS at that time. And all of it continues to evolve. And in many uh, cases, it's almost a case of musical chairs because there's not enough major uh, content to go around for all the players that are getting in. And sports is a driver of connectivity both in terms of economic value for advertising or subscriptions or or new technology engagement or deployment and I think that's going to happen here as well.
2: We are chatting with Don Garber, the Commissioner of Major League Soccer and Don, tell me about your morning when you wake up and I'm sure somebody calls or texts you early and says, hey, Deadspin's running a story that says, is MLS a Ponzi scheme? Is that just them not understanding the economics of sport as to luck, like, we talked about future possibilities and revenue where the world's going?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just think it's people that don't understand anything about the sports business, and, you know, the great thing that I've learned about our industry is there's no shortage of pundits, and there's no shortage of cottage industry around pundits, Uh, but generally those who write about uh, the sport as as economists have never worked in the industry, so they don't understand how our business runs. So to think that guys like Phil Anschutz or Lamar Hunt or Robert Kraft, or Arthur Blank, or Peter Guber, would ever be involved in anything that hasn't doesn't have sound fundamentals, uh, strong, thoughtful strategy, great governance in terms of how it it comes all together and how you operate every day, and massive amounts of planning and strategy that goes into ensuring that your doing what you need to do to be better tomorrow than you are today its just ridiculous because they're writing those things without ever talking to any of the owners uh, to find out why do they do what they do and why have they been able to be so successful as sports owners and by the way why have they been so successful in every other industry that they've gotten involved in.
2: Let's talk the core of it all, the game on the field. Where is MLS in comparison to Let's just say EPL. I think because so many young soccer fans, in particular, wake up Saturday mornings and turn on NBC Sports Network and can see Liverpool play Arsenal, Man U, Chelsea. They can't help but make the comparison. Does that comparison bother you? And where are we in the grand scheme of us versus them?
1: Well, you know, we're we're clearly not uh, at our, our teams are not spending the kind of money that you know, Manchester City is spending or PSV is spending or Barcelona Madrid are spending. So it would be inconceivable to think that, you know, we would be able to compete with Real Madrid day-to-day on the field or Manchester United or Man City on the field. But that doesn't mean that we're not able to provide great value to our players, to our fans, and to our communities, providing an opportunity for uh, a ever-growing audience to connect with a team on the ground in their city Uh, and having players that are those that they could identify with because many of them are coming from their community. Every year we continue to invest more and more in our player pool, and clearly the goal is to be competitive with uh, the other top leagues around the world. We're getting there. We're not there today. I think that as long as you have a North Star and focused on uh, ensuring that you're continually growing and evolving the quality of play, and I think that's evident by our growing fan base, uh, then we're moving in the right direction. All
2: right. Don Garber, Commissioner of Major League Soccer. Thank you very much for taking a few minutes.
1: Thank you, guys. I appreciate it.
2: Eben, takeaway from Dom Garber. For me, is that this real momentum here, building with MLS, he acknowledges that the revenue right now might not justify, let's say, the expansion fee cost. But you don't look at now. Investors look at the future. He said that you have to look beyond the right now. This could be real estate plays with stadiums. There's a media play. There's new media coming to play. He's got a very millennial-centric audience. He's got a global audience that we know likes the game. This, to me, is a possible opportunity for folks who are looking to get involved in pro sports but don't want to pay two plus billion dollars for a franchise in the more established leagues
0: you mentioned the millennial audience that's my big takeaway don garber listening to him talk this is a guy who understands that the demographic changes in the country are favoring him as the millennial continue to get older they're a tech savvy group they consume media in a different way that is his audience uh, and he is learning ways to capitalize on that that as you said is a long-term horizon it's not necessarily maybe five years from now. Maybe it's 10 years or maybe more. But he understands that the, the growth trajectory and, and the way this country is changing falls kind of right into his hand.
1: My goal is if you don't want to be the number one pick. That's
2: something I've been dreaming of since I'm a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. My... We have a chance
0: to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business & Sports, the number of the week.
2: All right, and now let's move to the number of the week. Eben, you have not been briefed, so I'll spring it on you. This was not discussed beforehand. 210. We should know what this is. 210, we talked about it. I'll give you hints. Football, quarterback, consecutive games. Ah, I have an idea. All right, it I made Eli, it easy Eli Manning. For <laughs> Eli Manning played in 210 consecutive games, benched. Now, you would think when a guy doesn't play, perhaps his merch would go down. <laughs> but we found it was different. You
0: see this a lot, actually. There there are times when, when you expect uh, a fan base to be feeling one way and then you look at merchandise sales. I'm shocked that Giants fans don't already own their Eli yeah, Manning jersey. who doesn't have an Eli Manning And the it? other thing, it, it's pretty clear that either this year or next year. He's reaching the end of his tenure uh, in a a Giants uniform. Um, But clearly, uh, there was an overwhelming show of support, both on social media, from fans. Uh, They were upset with his benching. The coach has lost his job. There's going to be others uh, that are leaving their positions high up at the Giants. Um, Well, the coach loses his job, but Eli gets his back. Exactly. The streak is at one. The number should have been one.
2: So did you you waste the money on the jerseys? You're starting quarterback again. I don't know. Anyway, I was surprised just like you. You've been listening
0: to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Evan Novi williams And
2: I'm Scott Soschnick. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in next week when we speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports industry.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes.